Hello and welcome to the Modern House podcast. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of design-led estate agency The Modern House. With this podcast, we aim to show how a well-designed home can support your well-being and make you happier. Today's a bit of an unusual day because for this episode, I've decided to interview my own wife, Faye Toogood. Have you run out of guests, I hear you cry? Well, not quite. I happen to be married to a rather brilliant woman. Faye is a designer and artist whose work crosses over into many different disciplines, from furniture to interiors to sculpture. Her gallery pieces are held in museum collections from Melbourne to St. Petersburg. She's had exhibitions at the V&A and Phillips, and her fashion label, Too Good, is stocked in more than 60 stores around the world, including Selfridges and Dover Street Market in London. I've asked Faye to pick her three favourite living spaces from throughout history so that we can debate the merits of time-honoured design principles like space, light and materials. Hello, Mrs Gibbard, how are you? I'm well, thank you. So I always tease you about this because you've done so many different things and there are so many strings to your bow, but I'm going to ask you the dreaded dinner party question to kick off. What do you do for a living? That is my dreaded question, you know it, and that's why you've asked it. Um, so the flat answer is designer. Um, I'll generally just leave it there. Um, and then people tend to say, what do you design? And um, yes, it's interiors, furniture, clothing, and anything else I can get my hands on, really. Okay. I'm a greedy designer. So tell us about your studio and your team and what the setup is. So um, I've had my studio for 10 years now, and it's a small family. There's only 18 of us. We're based in East London. Um, in our studio there, we have a, a house with, it's like a tall, tall house with little floors. It's a little tiny staircase. Um, and it, yeah, I've, I've bumped my head on that a few times. Yes. Um, and it, it's a place where we make things, where we design things. And we come together. We're a group of misfits, we call ourselves. Um, people that have come from different backgrounds, whether that's architecture, art, sculpture, fashion, graphic design. Um, and we're all coming together to work on, on our projects, be that a coat, a chair, uh, an interior. You know, we will approach all of them together. So your cross-disciplinary approach, how do you all work together and produce something? Well, obviously, we have people that have trained in specific um, mediums or genres, but we we try and take a kind of holistic approach so that you'll get a furniture designer looking at a coat design and commenting on it, or you'll get you know a fashion designer having an opinion on a material that you're using to create an interior. And I think for me, it is that cross pollination that happens within the studio that creates the most interesting results. Definitely. So what is it that unites all of those different things? Is it the sculptural element to everything? or I think it's only perhaps after this number of years I begin to realise what really does unite what we do. And, and I think it's three things. It's, it's, it is sculpture. You know, as a young girl, I was very passionate about sculpture and, and wanted to be a sculptor. Um, you know, my, I remember in my early days... I went on, uh, had a trip to um, St Ives to Barbara Hepworth's studio, and that completely moved me. And so, that those forms, those geometries that I found in that in her work and other St Ives artists really informs my work. The other thing is landscape, um, the British landscape. That's a huge 
influence on my work, whether that's the materials or whether it's the palette, the colours. Um, and then thirdly, it's materials. I'm completely obsessed with materials. Um, I have a large part of our studio dedicated to materials and things that I've collected. Um, I call it my jewellery box, but it's, you know, it's essentially the place that we go to to start everything that we do. So, yes, I think it's sculpture, landscape and materials. Okay. Um, so you and I are not quite childhood sweethearts, but we've known each other for 20 years now, believe it or not. Um, so we met at the World of Interiors magazine, um, where you were an interior stylist, weren't you? And I was drafted in to make the toast and uh, reorganise the library. Um, how how did you go from being a magazine stylist to what you do now? That's a good question. I mean, I loved working at that magazine. It was my education and you know after studying fine art and history of art um, I'd spent eight years there and it was the most amazing time you know handling an 18th century teapot flying off to Mali to go and investigate and shoot mud huts um, you know going to Rajasthani palaces Um, it was just the most incredible education and and I realized whilst I was there that I was getting quite frustrated with the two-dimensional uh, page and the two-dimensional image and I wanted to be involved in three-dimensional spaces I also realized that if I didn't leave after eight years I could be there forever yeah like most of them have been amazingly I mean, yeah amazing what a place it's a real institution isn't it I think it gave both of us such a wide-ranging aesthetic grounding don't you think absolutely that that was my education I think mm. yeah, yeah okay um, so let's move on to your three choices So your first choice of living space is the Eames House, also known as Case Study House Number 8, which is in Los Angeles. Um, And that was built, of course, by Charles and Ray Eames in 1949. You and I went there before we had children, didn't we? So we we went on this fantastic road trip around California and we did the usual tourist thing where we hired a drophead Mustang. (laughs) Um, But unfortunately, when we arrived at the car rental place, (laughs) they were fresh out of Mustangs. (laughs) So we had to drive along the Big Sierra in a convertible white Mitsubishi. <laughs> it wasn't really the, the look. We it looked. wasn't, was it? We no. looked like Nicky Clark and David Dickinson going on a road trip or something. Yeah. Um, but we visited all sorts of amazing houses along the way, didn't we? So the Schindler House, Frank Lloyd Wright's Hollyhock House, mm. um, the Pierre Koenig case study house. I mean, ama- you know, amazing things. No, it was, a, it was an amazing pilgrimage of all of that architecture. I loved it. Was. It. Yeah, it was. They say that only... British people and down and outs walk the streets in LA and I think that's very true because we spent a lot of time wandering around Silver Lake trying to scope out Richard Neutra houses and things like that it's it is actually quite a walkable place albeit very stretched out Mm. um but you've chosen out of all of those you've chosen the Eames house so what why is that what's special about that it's very it's very it's a great challenge actually to pick three houses three interiors that inspire you and and this is perhaps a super obvious choice but I couldn't not put it down and I put it down as my first choice um mainly because I think my next life will be in California and I would love to live in that house will you be arranged in the next life I would love to be arranged yes (laughs) um but I think I am you know deep down a a romantic and I, I realize that the houses that I've chosen today are the houses in which the artist or the designer or the architect lived in it's you know the properties the 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 houses that they built for themselves and they filled with their own personal objects and um, they were not projects you know there was no client so they were not necessarily a statement about 
their design capabilities. It was much more a personal reflection on them. And so when I arrived with you at the Eames house, I was just completely moved in a way that I wasn't really expecting. You know, I'd seen over and over again, we've seen those images of that house and, you know, books and studying it over and over again. And I just couldn't believe that I was looking at this space and that I got so close to the detail. And it is the detail. It's the it's the objects that were collected by Charles and Ray. Their life um, was their work and their work was their life. And that, you know, blending of life and work and design was so beautiful and it's so beautifully executed in that space. Um, you know, I was an obsessive collector as a child and I understand that sort of need and hunger that you have when you collect things you know if you're collecting shells or rocks you've got to have all the shells and all the rocks and you've got to have them all you know lined up and there's a specific reason why you've got them yeah I mean tell me tell me about that for a moment why why do you go to the woods and drag back a, an old piece of timber or why why do you collect that particular stone from that particular beach and put it on your mantelpiece or your kitchen shelf what is that what are you doing I'm not sure, but it's something that I've done and I know other creatives do from a very early age. I mean, children do it and all children are extremely creative. And it's something that connects us to the world. It's a way of making sense of the world. And it's, I think, you know, in the Eames house, it's so beautifully arranged, you know, books, fabrics, folk art, glass prisms, shells, rocks, baskets, you know, all of these groupings all together. You know, these were the most incredible designers of their time. They probably had access to some of the best art and design of, you know, from their peers. And they didn't fill their space with with objects of show. You know, they filled their space with toys and um, things that, you know, made them laugh or made them smile or that connected them. So while these objects that they had were, for the most part, had no value or nominal value as individual pieces collectively as a curation project they they are interesting Mm. and 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 that really does interest me and you know I can relate to that obsessive side of things I think the other thing that I think so beautiful about the house that they lived in they lived in it until they died um is that it's really just two glass and steel boxes one a studio and one a place of living and um you know they obviously tested out all of their designs and their furniture and the things that they were making in this space and it's noted that they had a lot of guests there and that they hosted a lot of people and it just seemed like it's just such a fantastic place to live and be invited to and I would have loved to have had an invite Mm -hmm. to see uh, Charles and Ray there yeah yeah. I mean there's, there's a spatial side to it as well isn't there I mean that that living space is so cavernous that you would have thought it might be overwhelming. But I think what what struck me when we went there was the way that they've arranged everything. Again, yeah. it's about curation. It really it really brings it down to a human level. So you've got this kind of almost airport terminal of a of a space, and then and then what they've done is they've got a bookcase with a ladder on top of it that reaches right up to the ceiling. So you've got a connection between the top of the room and the bottom of the rim, and then they've got a, a pendant light that reaches right down into the space, all the way from the ceiling. Mm. And again, it's bringing it down, isn't it? It's bringing it down to earth. Yes, I mean, it's, it's not really double height. It's almost triple height, isn't yeah. it? And um, I think they've also done that with a lot of textiles. I mean, they're very passionate about pattern and textiles, and there's a kind of great softness. And 
I think essentially, you know, the word to describe what they were doing was honesty. You know, it was great honesty to materials and honesty to the things that they found and the people that they spent their time with. And yeah, I think they would would have been good mates, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's safe to say, isn't it? It's this kind of human approachable side of modernism. Definitely. I think, you know, it certainly proves to me and it does to others that modernism is not cold. You know, there's a warmth there that, um, you know, it's really significant in modernism. I think people misunderstand that so so often. I, I think one of the interesting things about modernism externally is that people think of it as um, black and white, white painted render. Um, but of course, that's because most of it was photographed in black and white. And actually, the modernists were great colorists, hence Le Corbusier's apartments with their, you know, beautiful colors you know, hence Erno Goldfinger's house on Willow Road. Mm. You know, he, Goldfinger was another one, wasn't he? I mean, that house, which anyone can visit because it's National Trust owned, is filled with such personal objects. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the Goldfinger house is just outstanding. That is our British equivalent of that house too. Yeah. It has the same qualities. They were great colourists, absolutely. Yeah. Let's move on to your second choice. Some of you, I'm sure, have been to, but many won't have done. It's called Luna Ganga. Uh, and it's the country estate of the Sri Lankan architect Geoffrey Barwa. So Barwa bought a derelict rubber estate near Bentota in 1949, and he spent the next 50 years slowly reworking the landscape and turning it into this amazing pleasure garden. So the two of us visited a number of years ago, didn't we? We couldn't believe that you can actually stay there. And we stayed in Jeffrey's bedroom, didn't we? <laughs> which I mean, kind of felt wrong. Which felt say. very wrong, but, <laughs> but what an experience. I mean, tell us about the interior there. This place for me really is, it is about the house, but it's also about how it connects to the landscape. Um, mm. So the interior itself is actually very simple and humble. You know, it's all painted white. There's a lot of salvaged materials, a lot of raw, heavy patina steel and wood and brick floors it's very minimal and in and in that approach to materials um but he obviously had the most fantastic taste he had incredible antiques which I wasn't expecting at all so Asian antiques but also a lot of British antiques were mixed into this space he spent a lot of time in in Britain and and was very passionate about British architecture and, and British design and then that's mixed in with incredible abstract modern paintings um, but it's all done really low-key you know uh, very loose white covers on the furniture one of my favorite rooms is the sun room where you go and sit now you go and sit there and have your dinner tonic and the sundown um, and it's it's got that brilliant artichoke light who designed that what's his name Paul Henningsen yes and it's just it's just hanging there surrounded by beautiful plants tropical plants mm. and um loose white cushions and it's all rusty and perfect and you know yeah. you can't buy it like that now but it's it's just effortless and the tree the tree i mean he created what can only be described as a garden of eden i mean that that house you know that was just a plantation bungalow is about that garden and it's just I'll never ever forget you know walking around that garden and experiencing it and when you're sitting there having your drink and your sundowner um you're presented with this beautiful tree it's got these really beautiful serpent-like branches and huge leaves and it's planted and it's really right up against right the house. Right up against the house, yeah. Which um, is com- completely unexpected, isn't it? It's so unexpected. I mean, you would never put a tree that close to the house. And it, 
the serpent-like branches frame the view that you've got of the mm. lake that mm. um, looks onto Bentota, and it, it's just so remarkable in that in that sense. And and that, the garden, um, he really blurred the boundaries, I think, between interiors, architecture, and landscape. So the the house itself feels like a series of rooms, but so does the garden, and. Mm you can't really always understand whether you're inside or outside. And I think that is quite amazing. Mm. And the garden itself is not really about colourful flowers or neat borders or, you know, fountains or anything like that. It's just (laughs) an assemblage of of tropical plants and texture and green on green. You know, it's just the most amazing tropical it's very Paradise. Italian as well, isn't it? He was very yes. influenced by Italian gardens and, 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 and English gardens. Yeah, and then a bit of Japanese. It's like a mashup, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is a it? mashup. Um, in the best possible way. Yeah. It really reminds me, actually, of your grandfather's garden. Yeah, in Harlow, in Essex, yeah, which is open to the public, by the way. If anyone wants to visit an amazing sculpture garden, then the Gibbard Garden in Harlow is well worth a visit. So, I mean, your grandfather was particularly good at um, telling you where to sit at what time of the day. And I think mm. Jeffrey Barr was the same. So these sort of series of rooms in the garden, you work out when you're staying there that he planned for you where you were supposed to sit at what time of day. And, and I think when you have that connection to a landscape as a designer or an architect, you're really kind of on a different level, I think, on a different plane. It's the most beautiful place, but it also has a a slight element of peril, I thought. So that, that garden, it's got crocodiles, it's got lethal cobras in it, you know, some pretty hardcore nature. And you and I went for a, the most amazing evening stroll and and bumped into this enormous monitor lizard, which is yeah. quite a sight when you sit up close. I mean, it's Jurassic, isn't it? It gave us a bit of a fright. Yeah, it's funny, <laughs> I remember it. that's how you know that you're not in an English or an Italian garden that's how you know that you are polite in that it's not polite you're in Sri Lanka and and this nature can be pretty feisty yeah it's an absolutely amazing place one of the most heightened places we've ever been to for sure I think yeah absolutely okay so let's move on to your third and final choice I knew you were going to pick this one you couldn't not um, it's Charleston, which is a farmhouse in East Sussex that became the country home of the Bloomsbury Group. Um, so we went there back in our World of Interiors days, didn't we? Yes, we went there as a, on a school trip, you know, with the World of Interiors magazine. And I, I do remember that it was a bit of a struggle for you aesthetically. You know, you you were a, a young well, man, you know, grown up in a white a white house, you know, very obsessed with your contemporary architecture and all of this colour and pattern was, I think, challenging for you at the time. It was, yeah, but I massively appreciate it for what it is now. I mean, it's so otherworldly, that place, I think. Yes, I've picked Charleston because I feel that this is now probably one of the houses that's closest to how I want to live. Yeah. You know, it was obviously the home of Vanessa Bell and and Duncan Grant. And I think they had the most extraordinary life. You know, they had friends, lovers, partners, uh, academics, thinkers, writers, artists, everybody come and stay with them. And it was, they described it as an elastic house. Essentially, anything went, you know, in terms of love and relationships. And they all had relationships together. And they all painted nudes around the place. and Yeah, they all painted each other and they made sculptures of each other. 
And I think, you know, there's that sort of sense of freedom and liberation, um, you know, is, is really incredible. That's not the part that I want to re- resurrect in my new home, but it's... Right. Uh, <laughs> but it's about breaking the rules, isn't it's it? It's about and, breaking and then... the rules and, and, you know, and a sense of freedom. And, and obviously the Bloomsbury Group were the founders of the Amiga workshops. And I have to say that, you know, my house of too good um, and the Amiga workshops is... There's one thing there that we have in common. I think it is this desire to, you know, remove and break down the divisions between fine art and design and decorative arts. You know, they worked across everything from furniture to fashion and and, and, and so do we. Yeah. It's a complete riot of decoration and colour. I mean, let's just talk about colour for a moment. Well, I mean, their riot of colour is just extraordinary. I mean, every... Every inch of the walls are painted or covered in stencil designs. You know, the backs of the doors are covered in patterns and vases of flowers. Even the furniture, even the beds, you know, everything is painted with sort of thick layers of paint in these most amazing colours. You know, I'd love to do a study, actually, of how many colours are in that house. You know, there's this artichoke green that runs through the whole house. There's a whole bathroom dedicated to the artichoke green. And it's just, they were so bold with colour. And they're all perfectly off, aren't they, the colours? Yeah, it's kind of exactly dusky blue, damask rose, burnt orange, you know, funny yeah. murky colours that you wouldn't necessarily put together. And the best bit is the black dining room. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that room. It's black and then it's stenciled in grey and gold geometric patterns. Um, and then there's some red lacquer chairs and this funny, crooked ceramic lampshade that looks like a colander. And, um, yeah, I, I long for a black dining room. <laughs> I, I want a black dining room. But, um, yeah, colour. I mean, colour's really important to me, and it has been important in the different houses that we've, we've lived in uh, together. And I think they use that colour so freely, and I think, you know, those colours are British landscape colours. And, mm. and for me, that's... You know, when we're using colour, we tend to use it in the interiors and the fashion more than the furniture. But when we're using colour, there's definitely a nod to those Charleston colours that I, I really love. I mean, you touched on our own house there. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we lived in a, um, a little Georgian townhouse in Islington in North London. You know, the, the colours that you chose for that were, they were very deep, weren't they? There's, there's, a, there's yeah, an inky blue and an aubergine um, that was like living in a Vermeer painting. It was very Vermeer, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. Um, they were emery colours, weren't they? Yeah. And and lots of gloss, you know, very very rich, and and that felt appropriate for that building. And yes. then we moved to a 1960s house, which was built for his own use by Walter Siegel, and that's a, a very characteristically Siegel building in the sense that it's simple spaces. Yeah, and the, color, the colours would have been so wrong in there. So that, yeah. was, that was just simple and white. But I'm longing to live with colour again, actually, after having quite a yeah. clean palette. What's um, it going to be next time, then? I don't know yet, but there, there will definitely be colour involved. Because, I mean, for each of your fashion collections, you have to start to an extent. Yes, it's the, very much a colour palette, don't. absolutely. Yeah. And at Charleston, everything is hand-painted, you know, whether that's the textiles, the lampshades or the furniture. We, we do hand paint our clothes a lot. And I think, you know, there's something really beautiful about the hand element behind it. Mm. One of my favourite pieces of furniture, actually, is in this house. And it's the Lily Pond table. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. By Duncan Grant. 
he obviously painted it as part of the Amiga workshops, but it's incredible. It's like a camouflage, dazzle-like pattern, isn't it, in greens. It's so cool. It's really modern, I think, but it's just hand-painted lily pond on the top of a table. I love it. I would have walked out with that. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked about the garden at Lunaganga. Um, oh yeah, this garden. I mean, at Charleston, it was it was Virginia Woolf who first spotted it. So she was um, Vanessa Bell's sister, mm. and she wrote to her saying, "It has a charming garden with a pond and fruit trees and vegetables, all now rather run wild, but you could make it lovely. The house wants doing up, and the wallpapers are awful, but it sounds a most attractive place." They certainly did transform it, didn't they, with Roger Fry's help? I mean, tell us about the garden. Yeah, I mean, the Lunaganga Garden obviously is that tropical Eden, but this garden is probably the closest to, again, how I would like to live. And it's it's walled, tick, it's wild, tick, and it's filled with apple trees and hollyhocks and roses and vegetables. And it's just beautiful. It's so unpretentious and, you know unself-conscious in that in that sense and and it's just you know the perfect English garden in in my world yeah and I think what's so beautiful actually is this again this feeling of the decoration of the interior spilling out into the garden and it's this again the connection with landscape and interior is so important in that house yeah it's absolutely essential to every successful living environment isn't it the transition between the inside and the out. Yeah, I mean, if you if you have that, then you have a magical space, I think. Yeah. So I've got a few other questions for you, just because I can. Yeah. Because I've got you in a room <laughs> with a microphone. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, this one actually... The answer's I, no. <laughs> this one I ask to most people. Um, it's a very generic question, but I'm interested in your answer. What does home as a notion mean to you? Um... Home is family and self. If you're lucky, it's the place where you can be entirely yourself and at one, you know, with your family and yourself. You know, there are lots of words to describe that, sanctuary, etc. But, you know, it's more than that. It's, you know, without a home, you're lost. And so, you know, it's the most amazing thing that you can have in your whole life is your home. Yeah. We've obviously got three young children. How has having children affected your feeling of home? <laughs> I'd love to say it hasn't affected it at all. Um, there are a few more wipe-down surfaces and a few more loose covers that have to be thrown in the wash. But essentially, you know, the children have to live with you know, our stuff, mm. the art and the bits and bobs and the collections and my precious collections of stones are now mixed in with the kids' collections of stones. And, you know, if, if they break one of the glasses, they break one of the glasses, you know. Yeah, and I mean, I, one of our daughters went mad with a Sharpie yesterday, didn't she? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to roll with that. But it's better for the children. You know, having them there is, has made home even even better for me. And I, also, you know, their creations, the things that they create, the way that they curate their own spaces, even at, you know, even at the age of two you know they they move things around and it's important to them where certain things are Mm. i think that's it's just so inherent and instinctive in us to you know organize our belongings and particularly Mm. you know we have twins so so they have to have their own things and the way that they organize their own things the importance of having their own things is there yeah we have a, a very big kitchen table we're living in a flat at the moment but this flat is dominated by this table right in the middle of the space isn't it and it's 
it's an amazing piece of design. It's um, it's solid oak. It weighs, it weighs about eight hundred. <laughs> it's tons. stupidly heavy. It takes six people to carry <laughs> yeah. it. Um, but amazingly, the floor is stood up to this thing. But it, the surface of it, you've covered it in layer upon layer of car paint. Actually, I've just realised what it's quite lily pond. Yeah, it is quite lily. It's quite pond. lily pond. Yeah, I've just realised that. Yeah, so it's um, yeah, three colours of different whites and creams car paint that's just then trickled and streaked across and marbled across the surface of the table and then it's all covered in a thick layer of lacquer i mean i i I just i just think it's the most brilliant piece of design the reason i think it is that is because a it's it's beautiful to look at but b it, it can just handle everything that we throw at it i mean we eat at that we do schoolwork at it art everything dance on it yeah no i mean it's um yeah, no, I, I love it too. You know, it's um it's just it's just you know, it's oak and car paint. As a as a designer, as an artist, I think it's important to live with your own things. And um we also have one of your coffee tables, we have one of your roly poly chairs as well. What's it like for you living with stuff you've designed? Well that is a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. Um I don't know the answer to that. Because it sounds like vanity, essentially, living with your own things. But then if I think about Eames and Charleston, you know, you... Well, that's it. it you are surrounding yourself with the things that you make and... Um, but also, as the maker, you get all the cast-offs, don't you? You get all but the But, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, it's don't... not from a vanity perspective. The things that we have are because, generally, you know, yeah. I've been able to access them. There's lots of things that we don't have because yeah. I can't afford to buy Much them. Much to my frustration <laughs> as well, yeah. What's interesting about your furniture is that... It does cross over into fine art for sure, and a lot of it is they're gallery pieces, aren't they? But but what you've managed to do, I think, is something very rare, which is create genuinely new silhouettes in furniture that people haven't done before. That potentially comes from the fact that I didn't train in design, so therefore there are no rules for me. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't go to the RCA, I didn't train in product or furniture design so um what did you train in history of art and fine art so perhaps it's just a different approach and going back to that you know eight-year-old that wanted to be a sculptor essentially I approach everything with you know geometry and materials and it's that combination of the two things that means that new forms are created but yeah I'm passionate about creating my own geometry you know there's no point me making a chair that looks like someone else's chair yeah so i hope you don't mind me saying but i've also noticed in the home environment you're quite tidy <laughs> that's the understatement talk, talk to me about that as well um well you have it too mm. not as bad as me no admit it no. i'm very tidy i'm a yeah. i'm a busy woman I don't, a busy, yeah. I don't know if you've noticed i'm very busy yeah and i have a busy head and a yeah. busy brain yeah and i'm working on you know not 10 projects but 100 projects from clothes to furniture to children to you know an Ocado delivery it's all in my head and so therefore I have to be organized yeah and I like organization it makes me calm Mm. makes me feel uh, I'm breathing out because it's just (laughs) (laughs) it makes me feel okay yeah Um, and that doesn't matter what happens today because I know where everything is, I can access it quickly, and it just makes me feel calmer. Yeah. Um, 
my, mine is quite location specific, isn't it? Mine's about the bedroom. So I, I feel like I can't sleep properly if the bedroom is all over the place. So I, I'm, I'm the person that goes to a hotel room and unpacks everything into the wardrobe before anything else can happen. Mm. Yeah, I know. Well, everybody's, I guess, particular about certain things. But yeah, for me, it has to go all the way through to the cupboards. So everything is labelled, everything's in jars and boxes and... Um, it's the same in the studio you know we have so much stuff and we have so many materials and a huge archive it has to be properly organized so that we can find it yeah um, another question for you why do you insist on ordering so much obscure european lighting <laughs> <laughs> uh, this morning i spent about half an hour trying to track down an led module from the netherlands Tell me about the lights. What is it about these weird things that arrive? Oh, lighting is such a difficult... I mean, noted, I haven't designed any lighting. It's really difficult yeah. to design lights. And it's really difficult to find beautiful lighting. And so the majority of our lights are vintage. <laughs> um, and majority of them are Italian or Scandinavian. They design the best lights, full stop. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, you have to put up with finding special bulbs. It's just the way it is. Okay. <laughs> My last question for you, Faye. You are definitely the most imaginative person I've ever met. You're one of those people that wakes up in the morning with a million things buzzing through your You're head. You're never normally this nice. No, is that a compliment? I don't know. I'm taking the compliment. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. You know, the, the level of imagination I, I find constantly amazing. So I suppose for my own interest, I'm asking you this question. What, what goes on in your head? It's my head it's for me to know <laughs> fair enough yeah it's just way hardwired though isn't it it's just the way I'm wired and yeah. our eldest daughter is exactly the same it's just a vivid imagination actually and as a child that's quite frightening mm. it's quite um you know I was riddled with a lot of fears as a child a lot of uh, nervousness anxiety apprehension and when you're hardwired with an active imagination as a child it's very discombobulating in a way um, yeah. I've managed to harness it and use it later on in life but I think yeah early on it was actually quite a frightening thing like a you know like a train that you're not in control of right how have you controlled it I managed to find an outlet which is my studio and creating work so I feel that what I tend to do is create my own worlds you know I don't really live in the real world I've created my own imaginary world where that's you know filled with furniture and the clothes that I wear and the spaces that I create and it's all about I guess bringing to life what's in my head and I feel safe there now yeah, yeah. thanks Faye thank you Miss Digabid <laughs> well, that wasn't too bad was it no you got through it well I done. got through it yeah you were kind thank you thank you very much for listening to our marital musings today to keep up to date with new episodes you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts and if you fancy leaving a quick review we'd greatly appreciate it because it helps other listeners to find us too photos of all of the homes we talked about today can be seen on our website themodernhouse.com the producer of this podcast was caroline hughes and the executive producer was Kate Taylor for Feast Collective. <laughs>